Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of Memcast. I have Dr. Samboya with me today and we're going to speak about rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, thank you, Christina. That's great. So um, I'm going to talk about rheumatoid arthritis and really this is for what the non-rheumatologist generalist needs to know about very common autoimmune rheumatic disease. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune rheumatic disease that affects the joints and it's, it's very, very important that clinicians should be aware of what rheumatoid arthritis is all about. Now, this podcast is for the non-rheumatologists, so for generalists, what they need to know about the condition overall. The prevalence for rheumatoid arthritis is about 1%, so essentially for every 100 people in, in the UK population, one person will have rheumatoid arthritis. It's more common in females, just slightly. There's no age predilection per se, but the more mature people get, yes, there's a tendency that they may get rheumatoid arthritis, where you may get sporadic cases in the more mature patients, but by and large, it can happen even in children as young as four. But obviously, in, in that cohort, it's termed juvenile idiopathic arthritis. The diagnosis of rheumatoid is clinical. Serological tests do help to determine the prognosis of how aggressive the disease might be, but the diagnosis is essentially clinical. So what you would have is a typical patient with a history of small hand joint pain and swelling affecting the metacarpophalangeal joints, which we call MCPs, and proximal interphalangeal joints bilaterally that's the typical presentation that you get. And if symptoms are persistent beyond six weeks, that would be the clincher to the diagnosis. Now, I say this because rheumatoid arthritis as a disease entity has a knack for the small hand joints. So the point is, if it's very unusual for rheumatoid to have existed for many, many, many months and for it not to involve the small hand joints. So that's very, very unusual. You would expect that there would be some involvement of the small hand joints or in the fullness of time. Now, the disease tends to be bilateral. So if right hand is affected, you expect left hand to be affected. If left foot is affected, eventually right foot will be affected. But you can get 20% of patients presenting with asymmetric disease initially. In the fullness of time, or I say fullness of time, few weeks to months down the line, it will become symmetrical fairly quickly. So they get sort of a mirroring of, of symptoms. It doesn't have to be a perfect mirror, but it will be bilateral in terms of the disease that they get. Now, I'm sure most of you may be aware of various classification criteria out there. There's the American College of Rheumatology criteria in 1987. Then there's the um, ACR, that's the American College of Rheumatology, EULA criteria, which is the European League Against Rheumatism criteria 2010. But these are just classification criteria. You should never use classification criteria for diagnosis. And the reason for that is classification criteria are developed mainly for research purposes to try and pull a homogeneous cohort of patients together to facilitate homogeneous research. You should not use classification criteria for diagnostic purposes for that reason. That said, in some diseases, you would find that the classification criteria is incredibly sensitive and incredibly specific, so some people tend, tend to take liberties. But for that, that's a note of caution that one needs to be aware of. But there are some other rheumatic diseases that have their sets of diagnostic criteria. But for, for rheumatoid, it's a clinical diagnosis, and once the clinical history fits, you only just use the serology as a means to an aid to determine disease prognostication. So a typical case would be young man, young lady, elderly man, elderly lady presenting to your clinic with small hand joint pain and swelling in the small hand joints, MCPs on both hands or just one hand initially, then the other getting involved several weeks down the line, struggling with stiffness, usually lasting 30 minutes or more. The longer the duration of early morning stiffness, the more significant the inflammation the patient has. So say, for example, if someone has had stiffness waking up in the morning, 
lasting about two to three hours, that's very, very significant compared to an individual that the stiffness is only lasting five minutes. In fact, any stiffness under 30 minutes is not really as impressive. The reason why stiffness tends to be associated with an inflammatory state is because once you have a lot of cytokines flying around in the milieu of the individual, the more the cytokine activity, there have been some studies that showing some correlation with stiffness duration correlating with the extent of the inflammatory condition. Right, so someone presents to your clinic, you've examined them clinically, it fits. Serology is important, and the useful serology in this case would be rheumatoid factor serology. Again, rheumatoid factor serology can be found in 5% of healthy individuals, meaning there are some people that would have a high rheumatoid factor titer and will not have disease because it can be associated with other conditions. So never really make a diagnosis off of rheumatoid factor titer only. The clinical picture has to fit. When you add that to the serology, it then gives you a better predictive value, positive predictive value as to if someone will have rheumatoid or not. But it is useful for prognostication. So if the clinical history fits and they have a strongly high titer of rheumatoid factor, it suggests that they would have aggressive disease, i.e. there will be erosive disease or the features of extra-articular manifestations ranging from lung involvement in form of nodules to reviewing and the rest of it. Anti-CCP antibodies are also useful in that regard. Anti-CCP antibodies tend to be more specific than rheumatoid factor titer. But again, even for anti-CCP, just having a positive anti-CCP antibody titer is not enough. Studies have shown that it can predate disease onset. So having a positive anti-CCP titer doesn't necessarily mean that you have rheumatoid arthritis right this minute. It can predate it as much as 10 years. It all depends on the clinical history. And obviously, the more the title of MCCP, then the, the more likelihood that individual may eventually get rheumatoid arthritis. But in the right clinical context, that could represent rheumatoid arthritis. There's, there's something that's uh, emerging called double positivity. When someone has high titers of rheumatoid factor and CCP in the right clinical context, that's relevant because it suggests that those individuals will likely not get remitting disease, they will go on to develop established disease, and the sooner you pick those up, the better. Treatment. So in, we, we tend to treat rheumatoid arthritis very early now, very early and very aggressively. Clinics have been set up called early inflammatory arthritis clinics so that you can pick up the disease quite early and start to treat them early. And the most important thing is at first contact, you, you introduce DMARDs fairly quickly. Uh, now, the choice of DMARDs would be, methotrexate would be the initial DMARD most people reach out to. But again, you can decide to tailor the DMARD based on the volume of disease that the patient has. But nice guidance would suggest methotrexate would be, would be best to start with. Now, combination of DMARDs are also very important. Say, uh, as an example scenario, someone pitches up to your clinic with rheumatoid arthritis, you start them on methotrexate, and you do what's called a disease activity score 28 joint count. And if it indicates that they have either low disease, moderate disease, or high disease, you start them with methotrexate on the day. You arrange to see them again in six weeks, and if they still have quite persistent disease and they haven't gone into either a remission state, you add in the second DMARD. And adding in the second DMARD, you recess them again in about four to six weeks. And if the disease activity score is of high disease, that's when you introduce biologic therapy. Obviously, biologic therapy uh, uh, initially a few years back when it, when it first emerged on the scene, it was very expensive. It was about 10,000 pounds per year worth of therapy. But now with the em emergence of biosimilar brands, that's um, biologic therapy that's been made by other companies from the originator molecule. It, it tends to be more cost effective, albeit it still costs about 
1,500 to 2,000 pounds a year worth of therapy. Putting that in context for you, treating someone with methotrexate for a year is 36 pounds. So, so you can see that the, there's a vast, vast cost difference. Hence the reason why NICE restricts the use of biologic therapy to those with high disease only. And one could argue that those with high disease activity are more likely to get erosive disease further down the line. But there's, there's ongoing debates about introducing biologic therapy for those with moderate disease activity because they all often do badly as well. Now, choice of DMARD, apart from methotrexate, you can use sulfasalazine. Hydroxychloroquine is, is a favorite that people use on top of methotrexate or on top of sulfasalazine. You can also use a drug called leflunamide. I quite like leflunamide. It's comparative in strength in terms of methotrexate. Sulfasalazine tends to be right below methotrexate in terms of the strength in which it works. And obviously, steroids can be used either orally or as an intramuscular injection sparingly. We tend not to use steroids long term anymore. We just use it in short bursts to try and manage the patient's disease. And that's really how rheumatoid arthritis is treated. And those are the key points to be aware of. And 